0: Welcome to the British Army's Leadership Podcast, brought to you by the Centre for Army Leadership. Hello, my name is Lieutenant Colonel Langley Sharp, head of the Centre for Army Leadership, and it's my pleasure today to introduce our guest, Dr Tara Swart. Tara is a neuroscientist, medical doctor, executive advisor, senior lecturer at Mitsloan, sloan and author of the best-selling book, The Source, which has translations in 36 global territories. Tara is passionate about disseminating simple, pragmatic, neuroscience-based messages that change the way people live and work, and it's a real privilege to welcome her to the podcast today. Well, Tara, a very good morning, and welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me on this podcast, I'm honoured.
0: It's really good to to have you join us this morning. So we're going to start with uh, an easy question. Uh, to to ease the audience into what might be perceived a a rather complex subject. So, what is neuroscience, and why is it important to leadership?
1: Yeah, that's such a good question, and I I usually start all of my my teaching and my programs by addressing that because, um, well, firstly, I think that making complex subjects easy to understand and practical is a real skill, and that's you know that's kind of what I would like to do. So. Neuroscience is basically the study of the brain and the nervous system in individuals and also between people, so how people's brains interact with each other. And if you think about it, leadership is really about the impact of your brain on other people and how they respond to you through their nervous system. So it's basically human behavior.
0: One of the very reasons we asked you to, um, to join us on the podcast was exactly that, because I think often people look at leadership from sort of a, a broader perspective. Yes, they f- focus on individuals, but it's all about building teams, achieving tasks. Mm-hmm. But when you boil it right down, it is a human endeavor. And actually to get into some of the real um, deep understanding of, of how humans interact and how they, the human mind works, the brain works, is, is really interesting, which hopefully we'll get out of, out of today. So we're going to take a different approach to this. And as we discussed before we came onto the podcast, um, you look at neuroscience, not just for from the uh, perspective of the brain and, 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 and individuals, but you brought it right out to how it affects organisations. So you've t- previously talked about organisational plasticity. Can you explain what you mean by this?
1: So the concept of organizational plasticity came around because I teach at a business school in America and I work with a lot of um, leaders in corporations where the leader's issue is not just their own, it's what's going on in the organization. And so I based it on the concept of neuroplasticity, which is the incredible ability of the human brain to grow and change throughout our lives. So if you think about a child from, the, from birth to the age of two, They learn to walk, talk, manage their own bowels and bladder from having been completely vulnerable and helpless. So there's an incredible growth spurt in that first two years. And then in the teenage years, there's a sort of sophistication of the brain where neural pathways that aren't required anymore are pruned away. And more resources are given to pathways to do with socialization and reproduction. And We used to think that by the time you physically stopped growing, so about 18, 19, that your brain also completely stopped growing and that you were sort of left with the personality and the mindset and the ability to learn that you have by that age. Since we've had access to sophisticated scanning technologies, we've seen that the brain actively grows and changes until we're about 25. And it's really important to remember that that can be a good thing and a bad thing. So The brain is shaped and molded by everything that it experiences. Every person it meets, every emotion we feel, every memory we recall. And so you have to be really careful what you expose your brain to. I'm not just talking about formal learning. I'm talking about the culture of the business that you you have to operate in, the people that you mingle with. Um, And then, of course, formal learning, like continued professional development or You know, you might choose to learn a language later in life or something. So from 25 to 65, the brain naturally will tend to plateau. So you'll be playing to your strengths. You'll know sort of, you know, what you don't like doing and what you're not good at. But the point is that you can actually encourage your brain to stay what we call plastic as a scientist, but what means flexible throughout life. And if you start certain practices in your late 30s to early 40s, you can even reduce the cognitive decline that can show up you know, from sort of 70 onwards. So understanding how amazing and complex the brain is and how much it can change throughout life, I, I started to think of the metaphor of an organization as like the brain and to think about the natural growth spurts and natural times of pruning, but also what can we do based on understanding neuroplasticity to make businesses more effective, more efficient, to improve relationships and communication and to, you know, respond in a really positive and, and growth mindset kind of way to changes that happen in the world around us.
0: That's really interesting. So I'm just thinking from, as you say, the brain continues to grow and develop until up until the age of 25. So that's really important for us, a really important time in the careers of our junior leaders, mm-hmm. our private soldiers, our Lance Corporals, our corps moving into sergeants, and indeed our our junior officers. How then as an organization do we where do we invest in order to continue that that growth and encourage that plastic plasticity as then people move through the ranks and and, and, and have to take on new skills, new leadership responsibilities, and of course with that, a lot more demand on on the responsibility comes um uh, demand in terms of cognitive demand mm-hmm. so how do we continue to develop that as an organization where do we invest
1: such a good question and it's so interesting for me to be speaking with you because when i teach at, at the business school i actually use examples of what i of wisdom that i've read about from the army um to help businesses to do that better so it's it's quite interesting to come come around and, and speak with you about it and so because that, those formative years are so important, and that is when, you know, people are really starting to be identified as, as potential sort of talent for future leadership, the most important thing actually is the emotional atmosphere that they exist in. And so there's a, basic, there's a, a spectrum of basic human emotions that has fear, anger, disgust, shame, and sadness at one end. And these were our primal survival emotions from evolution. And at the other end are um, two pairs of emotions, joy, excitement, and love and trust. And in between, and they're the attachment emotions. So they're kind of, you know, how children attach their parents in a healthy way and grow up as sort of, you know, adults that can cope with all sorts of situations. And... So whether it's a you know a financial services business, but more importantly in the military, that level of trust and attachment has to be so strong. And if it is, that is a great foundation for people to re- reach the potential of their brain. Brains are—I'm oh, biased, but you know—brains are amazing. They—they they are such that they're, they're our biggest asset, and there's so much more than, that you can get out of your brain than most of us do you know, we go through life, we get a certain education, we go into a certain job, and, and that's basically what we do with our brain for the rest of our life. And, you know, we sort of manage our personal relationships and our health, usually kind of on the side. But you can do so much more with your brain. And if your brain is flourishing with trust and excitement, then the potential that it holds, there's more of it that you can access and reach. And I what what I say to businesses is that because it was life and death, the army realized way before corporate businesses did that if people are existing under fear or shame, they make bad decisions. That's in the short term. But but long term, I also say to leaders that think of the values that you use to nurture your family and your important relationships. You might not use the same behaviors in leadership, but the the values underlie that could be used as part of your leadership. So I've gone in at the emotional end, but I, the, you know, the science really shows that that is the most important foundation of good leadership. And then, on top of that, I would say, you know, an appetite for continual learning, and mm-hmm. and not just sort of logical learning, but learning how people work, how the world works, how you can get people motivated even through really difficult times, and equally understanding what demotivates you, what drains you, and, and listening to your body. So. Actually, in my book, The Source, there are six chapters on the different ways of thinking. And I think that really applies here. The first one is mastering your emotions. Emotions aren't bad. When they're dysregulated, that's bad. But actually, having a certain level of emotion in your decision making is really crucial to good, good decision making. The second one is at the brain-body connection, which is obviously even more important in the military than it is in you know in sort of businesses that I usually work in. But, but even then. What I end up saying to people is, you wouldn't drive your car without filling it up with petrol and checking the oil and the water, but you wake up in the morning, you don't drink any water, you grab a coffee, you skip breakfast, or you eat a really unhealthy breakfast, and you expect your brain to work at its best for the rest of the day. Third one is trusting yourself. So that's really about intuition. And there's lots of science that backs up now that you know, those lessons that you pick up in life, that wisdom is stored in in neurons or nerve cells throughout your body. So again, I would say really critical for military leadership. Um, Then there's logic. Of course, you know, we have to have logic, but that comes from all of your training um, and your formal learning. So most of the people I speak with, that pathway of their brain is very well developed and it's the other ones that can really do with kind of, you know, um, developing them more to to increase your leadership ability. And then there's motivation, which I already mentioned, um, which is connected to resilience. Um, And I always say mental resilience is the one key element that separates a good leader from a great leader. And finally, there's creativity, which might seem a bit, um, you know, not sort of so obviously related to military leadership, but actually creativity isn't what we used to think of it as like being good at art or drama or music. It's about using your brain power to come up with new and different solutions to help people get through periods that they don't think they can get through. Um, and to sort of, we can't really predict the future, but to predict future trends and make sure that you're at the edge of, of keeping up with these trends to do whatever it is that you have to do.
0: There's, there's plenty to, to unpack there, for sure. Um, I, I think the Army's come quite far in recent decades, certainly mm. as it's continued its journey of professionalisation um, to to understand a lot of this science that you're speaking about here um, and certainly pl- pl- certainly understand that there's a, an emotional spectrum and and leadership mm-hmm. needs to account for that emotional spectrum and mm-hmm. therefore the way you interact uh, with different people demands demands uh, different approaches I, I just want to pick up on your point on mental resilience and and you mm-hmm. and you said that that's sort of the defining feature of a, a great leader mm-hmm. can you just expand on that? and how can individuals develop their mental resilience
1: Yeah. yes so what, what i'd like to say actually first is that all of these things that we've talked about which seem quite intangible literally correlate to pathways in your brain and so you know i used to do a lot, lot of work kind of 10 12 years ago less so now which is a good sign i think on developing emotional intelligence in leaders um around the time of the global financial crisis, there were still people that would go red in the face and shout at people and reduce them to tears and think that that's good leadership. And I remember once working with a really, really senior chief finance officer who said, you know, I'm at the top of my career ladder. I don't even need to work for money anymore. And now people are saying they don't like working for me. Do I care? And can I do anything about it? And the only sort of branch he gave me was the can I do anything about it and I explained to him all about neuroplasticity and I said it's literally like building a brick wall and I will help you to lay it brick by brick um, with sort of you know small easy things that you need to do to build up to what people see as emotional intelligence and it's going to be hard work it's going to be about as hard as learning a new language. But if you're so good at being logical and technical, you can be so good at this as well. And I would say the same thing for mental resilience. So resilience, I mean, it's hard to separate physical, mental, emotional and spiritual resilience or well-being because they all go together. You know, if you're lacking in one of those areas, you're going to see an issue in another one of those areas. But the mental resilience piece is really about the power of the brain over the body or mind over matter. And so, it's the ability to endure difficult things, and it's also the ability to bounce back to your highest potential after being, ha- having your resources drained for some period of time. Um, and then I'd probably also add in a third part, which is the ability to see when a challenge is coming and prepare yourself for it. So, it's basically sort of a little bit like past, present, and future, sort of preparing yourself for challenge being able to endure it to the best of your ability and increasing what that ability is over time um, and being able to bounce back and be, you know, back to your usual health, um, you know, positive mindset, etc.
0: And and how do leaders, I, I guess this is quite pertinent to, to many leaders across sect, uh, many sectors today, given the challenges that people are facing, not least with the current pandemic, um, but also looking to the future and the complexity of the, 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 the future environment in which um, we are all operating and the challenges ahead. Increasingly, this, this skill, if you like, or this uh, ability, capability is going to be um, of increasing relevance to our people. So how do, how do, you, how do we practically develop mental resilience on a, on a day-to-day basis?
1: Okay. So I always say that to improve your brain performance and your mental health, you must start with the physical foundations that allow you to, you know, to even use those cognitive resources. And they are what I call rest, fuel, hydrate, oxygenate and simplify. So rest is your overnight sleep. And you we've know, said for a long time that, you know, 98 to 99 percent of humans need seven to nine hours of sleep per night. We know now that there's an active cleansing process that goes on in the brain overnight that takes seven to eight hours. So you really need to be in bed for eight to nine hours. There are one to two percent of people who don't need that much sleep. But all the leaders I know think they're in that one to two percent and that can't be true. So Um, we know that the optimal sleep time is eight hours and 15 minutes um, and that consistent sleep and wake times also give an additional benefit to just good quality and length of sleep. And so, you know, I, I wear this, this uh, aura ring to track my sleep. But there's all sorts of bracelets and, you know, things that you can wear. So I think self knowledge is really a really important part of mental resilience because the first thing I would know is if I haven't been sleeping well or I haven't been sleeping enough, I know that my mental resilience gets low. Um, so the you know, first thing I could do is make sure I'm getting that good quality sleep if, if possible. I just want to say here for the, your context that I have been a doctor, so I have also worked you know, shifts and, and very long hours and not slept properly. So yeah. I, know, I know it's not always possible. Um, fuel is what you feed your brain, basically. And your brain is only like four or five kilos. It's a tiny percentage of your body weight, but it's the hungriest organ in your body. It uses up 20% of what you've eaten during the day whilst you're asleep, 25% when you're task-focused during the day, and 30% if you're stressed. And you've mentioned the pandemic, so most people are chronically stressed at the moment. So it's likely that almost a third of what we're eating is being taken up by our brain. And so I always suggest eating in a brain-first kind of way. There's all sorts of reasons that we eat, and it might be to be healthy, it might be to put on muscle, but I urge people to, to think more, particularly leaders, about What do I eat today that helps me to make the best decisions? What do I eat today that helps me to manage people and manage risk? So for the brain, that is a lot of good fats like oily fish, eggs, avocado. Nuts and seeds are absolutely crucial, full of micronutrients and minerals that the brain needs that you can't get from anywhere else. Obviously, leafy greens, um, but also hydrating fruits and vegetables. You retain more water from those than just drinking water. All the dark foods are good for your brain. So like blueberries, purple, sprouting broccoli, black beans. And the good news is that dark chocolate over 80% and organic coffee also um, contribute that benefit. There's a substance in darker foods called anthocyanins that are very um, high in antioxidants, which are good for your brain and your body. Next is hydrate. Um, We need to drink half a litre of water for every 15 kilos of our body weight per day and most I will say more men than women don't drink enough water um I don't know what it's like in the military but in business it's terrible and I'm always telling leaders just to drink more water and if you drink a lot of caffeine or alcohol then you need to make up for that by drinking an extra glass of water because those um are diuretic substances that make water leave your body oxygenate is, it is about physical exercise and not being sedentary, but it's actually about your breathing. And this can be a really important part of helping people to build up their resilience, because when we get stressed, we breathe in a rapid, shallow way, like we did when we were escaping from predators, you know, in the cave. But in the modern world, it, you know, we, we, we started doing that from using technology. And we have started doing that now because we're in a pandemic, people are holding their breath. So really focusing on deep breathing, because the two resources for your brain are the food that you eat and oxygen. Mm -hmm. So, you know, even if it's breathing deeply between meetings or, you know, before an important speech or interview or something. Um, And then simplification is two things. One is mindfulness, which I'd really like to speak more about because I've got some great studies from the US Marines on what they've done with mindfulness. And then the other one is choice reduction. So when you wake up in the morning, you have a bucket of cognitive resources that is finite, and every single decision that you make um, uses up a bit of, the, of that resource. So this is the reason that Mark Zuckerberg wears the same clothes every day, and Barack Obama had a sort of you know formula for his wardrobe. He said, "I've got I've got more important decisions to make." Yeah. So if you if you arrive at work in the morning having thought, "What should I wear? What should I eat? What are my children doing?" You've used up some of the brain power that you might need for re- you know bigger and more important decisions later
0: in the day lucky we've got uniforms to wear yeah so, i was
1: just thinking that
0: so we're one up already but i needed more sleep more water and more chocolate happy with that um okay uh, i wonder if i can well let's let's pick, pick pick you up on your offer of mindfulness um tell us a little bit more about that and, and particularly its relevance to the military
1: yeah, sure. And, and you know, I think we're still going along the theme of, of mental resilience. You've done all that physical stuff. Mindfulness is a huge contributor to mental resilience. Um, and just before I get on to those really exciting studies, the the other things to do to build your resilience once you've got those physical foundations in place is to... You could either, you can journal or you can just notice what happens to you physically, mentally, emotionally and spiritually after you endure some kind of challenge. Um, And basically see what you did well, what you would have liked to have done differently and think about how you might do that differently in future. I really believe in doing things all the time to build up your resilience. And I have to say had the advantage of being a neuroscientist but it definitely got me through the last year better than it would have if i didn't already have those sorts of practices like meditation journaling identifying things i'm grateful for and things i've accomplished um and and understanding that my pattern of how i deal with difficult things and how i become better afterwards as a result of that so it's quite complex, but though, if you did all of those things, it would definitely you know, make a big difference. So the mindfulness thing is really, really interesting. I was lucky enough to speak to the professor that did this research with the US Marines. And so it was based on um, splitting the Marines into two groups. One was the non-meditating group, so they just carried on life like normal. And the other group did 12 minutes of mindfulness meditation every day for eight weeks. Prior to being um, deployed into battle. And so 12 minutes isn't very much. So it's something that most, even really busy people, can do. I think all the other things I spoke about, like sleep for 8 hours and 15 minutes, yeah. could be a bit of a challenge. But I always say, I, I don't believe that you can't fit 12 some, something into your day that takes 12 minutes that has so many benefits for your brain. So basically, they, they did mindfulness meditation. There are other forms of meditation like just focusing on your breath, um, just open monitoring of your thoughts, or using a certain sound or mantra or just an object that you stare at. So there there are different things that you do. And what we see generally is that people who do regular meditation have lower levels of the stress hormone cortisol than people of the same age and gender who don't do any mindfulness activities. When you actually practice meditation your brain goes into alpha and gamma states. And the gamma state is a state of relaxed alertness that you don't get when you're asleep and you don't get when you're focused on a task or under stress. And it's, it's really important because people can become a bit binary. So it's either I'm awake and I'm busy, I'm working, or I'm asleep. And so often when I work with leaders and introduce them to meditation... They fall asleep within a few minutes of trying it because they don't have any awareness of a state of being fully awake, but properly relaxed. And after eight weeks of meditation, we actually see physical changes in the brain. So the outer cortex of the brain is um, that sort of very uh, curly-whirly kind of folded um, layer. And we see that that layer becomes thicker. And what that means is that the emotional centers of your brain, which are the size of your clenched fist and surrounded by that outer cortex, they send off the um, emotional triggers like fear or anger. When your cortex, which is the more rational part of the brain that regulates your emotions, is thicker, it can press more of a pause button on those reactions. You would still have those reactions to something, but instead of, being very reactive and becoming engulfed by that emotion, you would feel more able to assess what you should actually do based on that emotion and even to, to regulate that emotion before it becomes too overwhelming. So what we saw in the Marines is that pretty obviously, I guess, that the group that did eight weeks of meditation had less insomnia, less anxiety, um, felt more resilient, you know, even when they were in training and in battle. But an interesting thing came up, which was that, you know, not not surprisingly, perhaps, some of these people were skeptical about meditation. So even in the meditating group, they hadn't done it properly or, or done it at all. So when they were in the battle zone, they noticed that their friends who had done the meditation weren't sweating with anxiety and could sleep at night. So they actually called up the scientists and said, I want, to, I want to start the meditation properly now because I can definitely see the difference you know, for the people who've done it. And so the researchers said, of course, we'll give you the tools to do it, but we're not sure it's really going to work. You're already in a battle zone and you haven't been you know practicing the meditation. And amazingly, they sh- they saw reductions in insomnia, anxiety, levels of the stress hormone cortisol in people who started meditating when they'd already been deployed into battle. So actually I'm so happy to get to speak to you because I use this example for businesses but I mean do you do anything like this and in-
0: we've got a program a mental resilience training program that's been set up um, very recently in the last few years and and a lot of what you're talking about here um sleep exercise food mindfulness is is discussed and encouraged um and and our people are being educated on the benefits of these um so yes they're very live conversations mm-hmm. um but I think we're at the I suggest we're probably at the early stages of of truly understanding the importance of mm-hmm. uh, these issues um and, and how significant they can be in optimizing our performance yeah. uh, both both in uh, you know on operations and 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 in barracks and in normal life and yeah. i and I, and I say that with a with a smile on my face, not just thinking about how this affects our military careers but personally my my role as a parent for example mm, mm. um because a lot you know a lot of this and Emotional uh, control um, <laughs> translates across in many walks of life, so um, it's 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 definitely, as I say, it's a growing conversation um, and understanding yeah. in the army. I wonder if we can um, can move on to to looking at teams, mm. and a reoccurring issue that many leaders face, and I don't think this is unique to to the military, is inadvertently building homogenous teams, which of mm. course result in tunnel vision and echo chambers when we're talking about decision making. So how can leaders use neuroscience to leverage diversity of thought from their teams?
1: Yeah, I love the way you said that, because obviously diversity and inclusion are important topics anyway. But as a neuroscientist, I'm really focused on, on cognitive diversity, which is getting together people who think differently, because you know, almost one of the biggest dangers in any organisation is that, that group think that you mentioned. Yeah. And I fully believe that you can have a room full of people who all look very similar, but think differently to each other. And you can also have a room full of people that look very diverse, but don't necessarily think that differently to each other. Although there is evidence that people who've had diverse upbringings and come from different cultures probably do think differently um, to to other people, more more differently than people who've had a really similar upbringing. There's even some research from MIT that shows that just being bilingual offers some sort of advantage in terms of being able to be more flexible in understanding how differently other people might think. Um, so I would say that things like having traveled to different countries and even trying to eat food from different you know cultures is all part of this growing kind of understanding of, of, of different people. So I'll come back to the six ways of thinking that I mentioned earlier, which I call brain agility. And I would say that, the focus should be on identifying people who prefer some of those different ways of thinking. So let's say for you, it was, and I'm not guessing about you, I'm just going to make something up, but let's say it was for you, it was logic and physicality. And for me, it was emotions and intuition. Then that would be a really great sort of pair of people to put together and then find people who um, So you know, you might be very good at understanding body language. A lot of people, don't really understand how physicality comes into leadership, but it can be looking at other people's body language. It can be listening to your own body. When you get different people, you know, who cover off all of those different ways of thinking, we're all doing all of them, but we have preferences that we've built up in our life. Then it brings that different sort of, those different angles of thinking to the table, but it also helps the other people to learn what it means when you use your intuition or what it means when you, you know, listen to your body if that's not something that they usually do. So I would also suggest that encouraging people to think about those six ways of thinking, what their preferences are, what they feel they could do in a crisis and what they don't really think they use at all, would be, it's almost like the science language gives you permission to talk about things that it's quite difficult to talk about without inferring some kind of judgment.
0: It boils back to sort of the core role of any leaders to know their people, isn't it? But mm. truly understand them and their strengths and weaknesses in, in in this sense. Moving on, you've written widely about epicultures in the physical and cultural context of an organisation. Can you explain what you mean by this and, and perhaps give us examples of how how you view it in business from your experience there and what leaders can do to, to both in, embrace and enhance epicultures?
1: Yeah, so I... I created that word from um, the science of epigenetics, which is the influence of the environment on the expression of our genes. So, you know, we used to sort of argue about nature and nurture and, and for a long time thought that, you know, DNA dictated everything and nurture didn't make that much difference. But there are lots of twin studies that show that identical twins who have, who experience different life events have very, very different lives and not just in terms of the external things like relationships, but in terms of things like propensity to obesity, diabetes, heart disease, alcoholism, all sorts of things. So if you, if you understand that the environment that you're in, and, you, and, and these studies come from um, really stressful situations like the Holocaust and the Dutch famine, and show that three generations later, people's genes, um, in terms of stress response, has been altered by the event happening to the grandparents, either prior to conception or during pregnancy. Um, And and these responses can be different. So if you had an incredibly stressed grandparent, it could make you more resilient or it could make you more anxious. So you kind of have to know know, what your genes have have dealt you and then kind of decide what you're going to do about that. So I think all of that research is incredible. And it made me think about both business cultures themselves, but also the kind, the medium that that business has to operate in. And so originally I I sort of meant things like the geopolitical or psychosocial um, factors in the world that mean that businesses have to operate in certain ways. But for example, if you think about the pandemic and you think about the technology companies that have done so well and the food delivery companies that have done so well, and you think of disruptive technologies like Uber and Airbnb um they are businesses that have looked at the the world around them mm-hmm. and come up with a solution for something that's changing in the environment so that's what i meant by epicultures which is how does your organization stay nimble in a world that's changing at such an exponential pace
0: and the difficulty is is being a keeping keeping uh pace with that change and understanding of that environment around you, you know we we often say that you know, context is everything in, in leadership. But increasingly, mm-hmm. it's the complexity of the world we're, we're living in makes understanding of that environment ever more difficult, doesn't it? Yeah. When we look at leadership in its most basic form, it's about an individual influencing another individual in order to achieve an outcome. Mm-hmm. And the, the medium through which we do that is communication in, in its various forms. Mm-hmm. So from an organizational perspective, then, how can neuroscience help in improving communications, both internally within in an organization and externally as well.
1: Yeah, this brings to mind one of my favorite quotes um, by Ralph Waldo Emerson, which is, what you do speak so loudly that I don't hear what you say. And there is a neuroscience element to that, because if you think back to the revolution, there was a time that we roamed on the savannah and we were no more special than any of the other animals. Um, and at that time, We had our limbic system, which I said is the size of your clenched fist, but we only had a very thin layer of cortex over that. We weren't able to speak. We weren't able to use tools. So around the time of what I call the cognitive revolution, and it's a bit of a chicken and egg situation, we don't know whether we discovered fire first and then were able to cook meat and ingest protein much more efficiently. So our guts shrank and then the cortex grew, so it grew to become as thick as the limbic system. Or perhaps we evolved and because our cortex grew, we understood how to use tools and make fire, but it doesn't really make any difference which way around it was. We grew this cortex and we learned how to articulate speech and other things. We learned how to plan and predict for the future. And that made us become a much more superior creature than we had been before. So usually, if you and I are speaking with each other, then you would mostly focus on what I'm saying. And some people might also focus on body language and, you know, some people might take it a bit further and look at micromuscular changes on the person's face to kind of understand what's going on for them emotionally. But we also communicate with each other through our hormones Mm. and we don't really acknowledge that anymore. Since we've been able to speak, that's become like almost the only important thing. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so many leaders still are quite ill-equipped to understanding body language and, you know, particularly emotional expression. And then if you think about, I mean, imagine someone that you've worked for in the past who just by being in their presence, just by being in their office or around them, you just feel completely drained and negative afterwards. Yeah. And the reason for that is that our stress hormone, cortisol, actually leaks out of our body in our sweat about a few inches um, around us. And depending on the hierarchy that you have in the organization, so basically the silverback gorilla, his stress levels affect other gorillas in the troop more than gorillas who are equal to each other. And so it works like like a cascade down the organization. So basically, if your boss is stressed, the cortisol that, that that person is leaking out of their system if you spend enough time around that person, those particles can actually enter through your skin and raise your cortisol levels, even if you weren't stressed in the first place. And that's why you sometimes feel completely negative and drained after you've been around a stressed person, particularly if they're suppressing stress. So if the, if the um, language is saying, everything's fine, everything's going to be fine, this is what we're going to do but actually the person's really, really stressed, you would pick up on that. And then that conflict in your brain, which is partly conscious and partly not that conscious, creates more stress, basically. So communication has to be on all of those three levels. It has to be what you say, um, how you show up in your body, and how you are actually managing your stress um, at a, a very fundamental level
0: it goes back to that point about knowing yourself again doesn't it yeah and understanding your impact on others Mm -hmm. you've mentioned previously that vision mission and purpose act as a myelinating factors or act as myelinating factors to communication in keeping an organization's decision making focused and efficient can you explain what you mean by myelinating factors in this context have i got the pronunciation right
1: yeah totally um So yeah, I should probably explain that the organisational plasticity model, which is based on neuroplasticity, as we said earlier, neuroplasticity itself has three physical mechanisms in the body. And one of them is myelination. Myelin is a fatty white substance that coats some brain pathways. And those pathways become fast because they um, conduct electricity faster than non-myelinated pathways. Um, So a classic example is if you put your hand in a fire, then your reflex to snatch your hand out of that fire is a fast myelinated pathway, but your pain response is a slow non-myelinated pathway. And that, that has an evolutionary advantage because if you were crippled with pain as soon as you you know touched fire, then you wouldn't be able to um, get away from the fire or the animal that had bitten you or whatever it was. Yeah, so myelination is basically about efficiency and effectiveness. It's about conduction of those messages from the vision and the mission through the organization. And then I'll just quickly touch on the other two mechanisms because we've already actually talked about one. So the next one is synaptic connection. So each nerve cell or neuron has a little bulb at the end and where it meets another neuron, there's a space between them. And chemical messages are um, released into that space and taken up by the next neuron. And that's how neurons communicate with each other. So synaptic connection in an organization is about critical relationships and stakeholders. So basically how good your relationship is within your team, with other teams, with customers or clients who are, you know, or um, investors depending on what the relationships are. Um, So it's the quality of those relationships. And then neurogenesis is the growth of new nerve cells. So in the adult brain, we only know that that happens around the hippocampus, which is where we embed new memories. Yeah. So that makes sense. Um, and these are little embryonic nerve cells that grow into a fully formed neuron and then connect up with other neurons, et cetera. So that's about innovation and flexibility in a business.
0: And when in, when should an organization use non-myelinated pathways for decision-making?
1: I love this question. No one's ever asked me this before. I'm <laughs> um, I was, I was so impressed by this question. And yeah, I think, you know, especially this last year has been an interesting example of that because I think at first everybody scrambled to move to working at home and homeschooling and you know using zoom like we are for meetings and you know what sort of has to happen next particularly now that we're considering sort of re-entry or normalization is which bits of the life that we had before do we actually not want anymore what have we learned in this last year that potentially has made us a better leader or improved our organization or, you know, even just made you feel like a more or less resilient person. So the um, non-myelinated decision-making is is that strategic stepping back, um, you know, really thinking long-term about what we should do going forward. I know that you watched my um, TEDx talk on technology and I was really blown away when I found out that in um, Native American Indian tribes, when they make a decision that's going to affect their community, they sit the leaders sit in a circle and visualize the impact of that decision seven generations into the future. I, mean, I just find that so incredible. I don't really think we even really think about the impact of our decisions one generation into the future. No,
0: that's fascinating. That's a whole new perspective on, on, uh, on creating a mission and a vision, isn't it? Yeah. When you're looking that far ahead. Um, sticking with decision-making then, and particularly focusing on decision-making under pressure, which we'll be familiar with um, in the military. It's well known that stress then and, and, and tiredness impacts decision-making significantly. And you've already mm-hmm. spoken about this um, to a degree. Mm-hmm. And the mind then begins to make shortcuts and becomes susceptible to bias. And it narrows mm-hmm. the filter to uh, collate and assess data. The the, the fog descends. So mm-hmm. how can we reduce this and and fight to maintain having that, that same clarity of thought regardless of the situational pressures?
1: Okay, that it's a great question. I I I feel quite strongly that I have to say, obviously, there is a limit beyond which you can't do that. But raising your threshold, sure. So um, there's there was some research done on marathon runners or um, ultra marathon runners that showed that. So basically, there was this marathon runner who always came second but never came first, and then she did a marathon in the Sahara and got so dehydrated that she actually had an epileptic fit. And so she went into recovery, but she had a small focus of epilepsy in her brain that just never went back to normal. So she had to have some brain surgery. And it turned out that, so they literally just, it's like a short circuit and they just kind of you know got rid of the short circuit. But obviously with brain surgery, there's always a bit of collateral damage. And so she had some short term memory issues afterwards. But once she was physically recovered, she started winning ultramarathons. And what it turned out to be was that she couldn't actually remember when she'd started running. So she didn't get the normal signals from the brain that say, you're tired, you're hungry, you should stop, you should have a glass of water. So she just kept going. Now, the danger with that, and the reason I've hesitated a bit and, you know, sort of put that disclaimer at the beginning is that, you know, we we must not flog people to death or push ourselves you know beyond a point where we'll never be as good as we could be again but I took that research and I thought obviously when I was a junior doctor I I did have to do that on days where I was really jet lagged and tired I just created a mantra for myself that said tiredness is a state of mind and I just repeated it until I felt that it was true and I you know and I could overcome that but then I'm very, very careful about then always going to bed early that night and not pushing it into even, a, you know, the next day. But so I think, again, it comes back to knowing yourself and understanding that, I mean, there's actually, there's actually a saying that sort of, you know, if you do keep flogging a horse, it will keep working till it dies. We won't do that, but we have a much greater capacity to keep using our brain power then our brain lets us think. Because obviously to protect our survival, the brain will say, you're tired, you should, you know, you should stop. But you do actually have quite, quite a lot of you know, capacity in, in the tank still at that point. You just need to know when to actually stop. And I have to, I have to keep coming back to meditation and saying that that is the way to keep your decision-making and risk appetite and your focus better for longer. That, that is the answer.
0: It's on the list. More mindfulness. <laughs> Building on what you've uh, said previously about, uh, about discovering f- fire, how fundamental is the impact of advancing technology on the human species?
1: Yeah, so going back to what we were saying about we don't know if we discovered fire first and then, um, you know, evolved or the, if it's the other way around, it's a bit like that with technology. We've already lost the idea of really, I think, you know, like basically... The concern is that do we control the technology or is technology going to control us? Um, We've pretty much all outsourced our brains to our smartphones already. Um, And we know that from um, brain scanning that the memory and concentration centers of the brain have shrunk since we've had smartphones. But I think, you know, it's easy to listen to that and think that's a bad thing. But actually, why is it a bad thing? If you can outsource some of what your brain has to do, like remembering phone numbers, which you you know, don't really have to, um, then you can use that that brain power for other things. So I, I think you'll I think you'll agree that you probably know the phone number of the house that you grew up in and some of the friends that you went to school with their parents, landlines, but you know, people don't even know their, their husband or wife's mobile phone number anymore, um, because it's all on the phone. So I think it's important to think of the brain as an amazing adaptive organism. And that there are some things that come from technology that are actually good for our brains, like there are lots of meditation apps, for example, Um, and that there are some things that we can willingly outsource to our technology. But it's just, yeah, it comes back to what I said about the Native American Indian tribes that I don't think we've really thought about some of the negative effects. And I think we've seen them quite a lot this year, actually, with people being stuck at home and on devices that there's more anxiety around social media, even than there was before, for example. So it's, it's a balance. And I think we just need to be really thoughtful about not letting it take over our lives, but also understanding that things like drones and you know, robotic arms and surgery are amazing advances that, that we should be grateful for, but that it's a balance.
0: Absolutely. And it links into my next question in terms of the impact and certainly for our, our children and the future generations. And in that same TEDx talk, you quoted Bill Gates, who said recently, if you have a high school, education or lower, you you will be replaced by artificial intelligence in our lifetime. That's quite a statement. So how do we prepare our future generations for this reality?
1: Yeah, I'd kind of forgotten about that. It's quite a shocking statement. Um, so he also said something which was really interesting, which is that, He advised that children should keep maths on their curriculum for as long as possible. So, you know, most people, I think everyone does it up to GCSE, but, you know, if you can do it further than that, then do, because having that mathematical mind um, could be really useful later, where the world is going to be a lot more about computers and algorithms and stuff. He also said that if you go into sort of, you know, biotech or um, AI, then obviously you won't get the place. But I was really thinking about this, because, you know, as I mentioned, my husband chose not to go to university and went to Sandhurst. But I don't think he would ever be um, replaced by AI because he came out of the army, did something completely different. He is, you know, his his abstract thinking and his flexibility of thinking are really superior. So I don't think it has to be just about formal education. Um, I think higher education certainly would give an advantage. But I think this you know understanding some of the concepts that we've spoken about like neuroplasticity and brain agility could still mean that you don't get replaced by AI in our lifetime.
0: Hopefully not hopefully that doesn't come true. Bringing it right back to some practical tips then what, what, what can we do as leaders to keep stimulating our brains to remain flexible and capable of of learning what are some sort of practical top tips?
1: They're not easy things the, t- the two top things that you can do to keep your brain really plastic and flexible is learn a new language or learn a musical instrument. And unfortunately, crosswords and Sudoku aren't really enough. It has to be an intense learning. Um, but you may you know, you know, may go through intense learning as part of your, your leadership training or your job, um, which is fine. But it's got to be up there in terms of intensity with something like that. So, I mean, it could be coding. It could be cooking if you don't cook. But basically... Putting yourself through intense learning actually physically changes your brain and you get not just the benefits of the skill that you've learned, but you um, have improved executive functions in the brain. It's nothing to do with being an executive. They are the ability to regulate your emotions, override your biases, think flexibly and creatively and solve complex problems and switch effectively between tasks because that's what you want to do rather than multitasking.
0: The list is growing. (laughs) <laughs> no, now have got to learn a language. Great. We're going to finish, uh, Tara, with a few quickfire questions, if I may. Who's your most inspirational leader from history and why?
1: I would have, I mean, there are so many, but I would have to say Nelson Mandela. Um, I think the, apart from the obvious things, the, the, the forgiveness and humility is just such a huge element of what I think made him not just a great leader, but somebody that people really loved.
0: Most valuable leadership lesson you've learned? Oh.
1: <laughs> um, well, I think, I, I think that I learned some things from when I was a doctor, which, where obviously if you made a single mistake, you, would, you could see somebody die right in front of you. To have, so, you know, what I say to the people that work for me now is we're not in the military or in medicine. Like, what we're doing is not life or death. So, if something goes wrong, don't kind of panic. And the biggest thing that I've learned with the people that work for me is, I, I've said to them that people make mistakes and I can accept that. But if you don't tell me straight away, I can't do anything about it. And but but you've got to back that up by then not punishing the person for making a mistake and coming and telling you. So, you know, it's 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 not just you have to tell me when something goes wrong, but it's that I will receive that in a way that will make you want to do that again rather than think I don't want to tell her because. The last time I told her, she you know, was really angry with me or something like that.
0: Absolutely, safe to fail where it's appropriate. With mm-hmm. hindsight, what would you tell a young Taurus what about leadership?
1: <laughs> um, I would say, trust yourself, mm-hmm. um, rely on your intuition and, and basically operate on trust. Trust other people as well, unless they prove you wrong.
0: The glue that binds leadership, trust. What is society's biggest leadership challenge in the future?
1: I think it is it's going to be something around around plasticity, actually, and, and pivoting, because I think businesses are going to have to make a lot of changes to future proof themselves, as it were. So I would I'll probably put those two things together and say that, you know, building and, and retaining trust is, is going to be important for the leader themselves and being able to lead an organization through transformation, perhaps with many pivots and reinvent yourself many times is is going to be the thing that keeps organizations ahead.
0: Tara, it's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, I hope you agree that was a fascinating and really insightful conversation with Tara on a subject I think deserves greater attention from practitioners of leadership. I guess there is an inevitable fear that in trying to understand even the basics of neuroscience, will engulf us all in complex scientific phenomena. I was impressed by how Tara could take complex neuroscientific concepts and translate them into something very meaningful, not just at the individual but also at the collective level. As an example, taking neuroplasticity, the ability of our brain to grow and improve through our lifetime, and reframing this concept for business through what Tara calls organizational plasticity, Taken what we have learned in regards to relationships, communication and growth to improve business. Furthermore, Tara talked about the concept of epigenetics and how she translated that into organizational epicultures, arguing the importance for organizations to think about the impact of the world around them and the effect that that will have on their businesses and how to stay nimble in a world that is changing around us at such an exponential rate. Tara also talked about the importance of healthy emotional balance And how if your brain is flourishing with trust and excitement its potential is significant hence for us why our values and standards are so important in driving healthy cultures and climates because it is only when leaders have created the right environment which ultimately manifests in healthy emotional environments that our people will flourish tara went on to talk about the key concepts in her book the source a book i would certainly advocate she outlined the six concepts for us mastering your emotions Brain and body connection, trust in yourself, logic, motivation, and creativity. And in motivation, we then went on to talk in some detail about mental resilience and how, particularly, ensuring physical health and well being, rest, fuel, and hydration is so key to mental resilience. And from there, we talked about the benefits of mindfulness and how just 12 minutes of meditation a day can make a tangible difference on your brain's ability to control emotions. So plenty to take away from our conversation today. And one in which Tara has very skillfully simplified complexity and certainly enhanced my understanding of a fundamental subject that sits at the heart of how we lead and how we follow on a daily basis. If you like what you've heard today, please do subscribe to our podcast. Visit our website, Centre for Army Leadership And follow us on our social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn.